We're in Psalm 139, middle of the Bible. And in this uh, prelude to the week of Jubilee, I think the Lord has some cool things to say to us today. Yes, cool things he's even said to me. Hear the word of the Lord from Psalm 139. David speaks this psalm saying, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed me, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there were none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I were to count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Grass withers, flower fades. The inerrant word of the Lord stands forever. You may be seated. Sometimes God totally surprises us. We think we're doing one thing for God and he's actually doing something different to and with us. A month ago, Elizabeth and I had the privilege of going out to a big meeting for church planning leaders in the, uh, of the Presbyterian uh, Church of America. We were getting together to talk about big ideas and strategies for how we're going to reach the world for Christ and church planning around our nation. And I was gearing up for that day. Yeah, man, we get to talk about big ideas. This is going to be exciting. And then God hijacked me. A guy named Skip Ryan, a pastor in the PCA, well-known for planting two huge churches and also for falling from the ministry seven years ago. 
got up and spoke. And he said things that resonated with me and Elizabeth and all of us there very deeply. You know that feeling, someone starts talking and even preaching, and you think, is he talking to me? Because I feel like he's talking to me in this room right now. Yeah, preachers get that feeling too. Skip gave us reminders of things that really mattered in, in the Christian life, the things that we often forget because people like me are too busy doing ministry. And what did he talk about? He talked about knowing God intimately, personally, while knowing ourselves. I have to admit, that was a mind-blowing week for me. And today I want to share some of what Skip said, and even stuff that I've been learning through the years about this thing that I just keep falling off the wagon forgetting in my relationship with Jesus. And so today, with this prelude to the week of Jubilee... I want to say that this has, what I'm about to talk about has everything to do with your walk with Christ, your walk in your families, and your walk even with unbelievers in your lives. And it's all about the pursuit of God and spiritual health with Him, even by knowing God and knowing ourselves. Knowing God and knowing ourselves, that is a thing that we're probably not as familiar with as we should be. And so today there's three questions we're going to highlight in this knowing God and knowing ourselves. First, what does it mean to know God and to even know ourselves? Second, what are the implications for us, especially in times of stress and hardship? And third, what can we do in this coming week of Jubilee to pursue the spiritual health of knowing God and knowing ourselves? David thought about these questions in Psalm 139 and, and went so far as to write out loud his prayers in song for us about this. Now, Psalm 139 is one of the most famous psalms in all of Scripture. Folks uh, about uh, read this and often are inspired by it, but I hope you'll see there's way more to it than what we normally read within the text. And it's all about really the business of knowing God and knowing ourselves. And David gets right to that point in the very first verse of our text. Look at it with me in Psalm 139. This is what he says. He says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know, when I sit up and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. David addresses God as Lord or Yahweh. That little word, Lord, is Yahweh in the Hebrew, which is, a, which is the name given to the sovereign I Am. The one who's in control of all things and the master of all from beginning to the end. And what he says in here is really fascinating. He's speaking to the great transcendent God. And he's saying, Lord, you have searched me and known me. And when he says he has searched him and known him, he means that when God searches us, he sees us for who we are. Not just physically, but he sees within us spiritually. God knows what's going on with us on the inside, not just the outside, which we normally are just paying attention to. He sees all. And yet he also knows us. What that means is 
He not only sees us and understands us more than we even know ourselves, he actually leans in and engages us in a personal, relational way while seeing us. Now, of course, there are four ways that he searches us and knows us, he sees us and engages us personally. And the first comes in verses 2 through 6. He tells us that God knows everything about us. He knows our thoughts. He knows our words. Even before we speak it, he knows our ways. He knows our rhythms of life very well. In other words, he is intimately omniscient regarding us and our story in life. Now, already when I say this, a thought pops in everybody's mind. It does mine at least. And you start to think, does he know that about me? And the answer is yes. He does know that about you. And you know what he does? He sees you and he engages you personally. Second thing, the way that God searches us and knows us is in verses 7 through 12. Uh, Verses 7 through 12 tells us how God searches us and knows us in another unique way. Look at verse 7. It says, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, you're there. That's effectively what he says in this text. You are there. In other words, God is present with us everywhere. David says, there is no place I can go where God isn't already waiting. If you die... God is waiting in heaven when your soul goes to heaven. If you die, when your body goes to the ground, God is waiting for you there. Not only that, God is with us when we're flying in an airplane, as if we're flying in the morning, like it says in our text, supposedly. And even if we were to go scuba diving, God is there in the sea with us. In other words, God is intimately omnipresent with us. Everywhere you can imagine you could go, God is waiting there. Now, there is an interesting twist to this set of verses. In verse 7, David says an interesting thing. He says, where shall I go? Where shall I flee from you? You know what he's saying, right? He's saying uh, basically this. There are times when he wants to run from God. He wants to forsake God. He wants to get away from it because the gaze of God sometimes feels too intense or he just doesn't want to deal with God and wants life on his own terms. He wants to run. So what does that mean? You and I aren't alone in our impulse to run from God. But don't forget, wherever we run, God is right there. He's right there with us. He's standing at the door knocking in his omnipresent intimacy with us. Third way God searches us and knows us is uh, some of the most famous phrases in the Psalter and in the Psalms. uh, Verse 13 and 14 says, For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Ah, what beautiful words. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. God was right there at our conception. He created us using the means of this world and our parents. 
And he's the one who came up with the idea and the extraordinary processes of reproduction from egg to zygote to fetus to child to person right from conception. In short, God is intimately omnipotent in our lives. He's able to create us. I would be remiss if I didn't note that this verse clearly highlights God's creative intention. Therefore, this is why we say we don't believe in abortion as an option. It is a taking of a life. In our Christian worldview, God is the life giver. He's the one who determines when we have life and when we pass away. And we are called to protect the life, not only of the child, but the dignity of the woman who has the child within her as well. Human beings are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. Don't miss this, though. There is a way that you, we can look at this, uh, this chapter, or rather this psalm, and see these beautiful verses and miss the larger point of this, and that God is an intimate part of our lives in His power, in what He's done from us from our very beginning of our lives, even to now. He is at work. Fourth thing in our text is in verse 16b. It says there is... One last point here about God searching and knowing us. It says in verse 16b this. It says, In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are, God, are your thoughts, O God. How vast the sum of them. God has our days numbered. He knows the length of our life. It's a part of a grand plan, a grand story. In other words, we all have this story that is evolving in our lives with our glory, with our darkness, with our beauty, with our sin. But that story fits into the larger story of God's plan, an intricate and beautiful plan. Another way to say this is not that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. I'm sure some of you have heard that before. But God loves us and has a plan for our story to fit in his story, which ends in utter glory for him. In other words, God is not only intimately omniscient about us, intimately omnipresent with us, intimately uh, omnipotent for us. But he is intimately sovereign in our lives, in everything that occurs. God sees us. He knows us. He's so intimately aware of you and me that we can't conceive with our thoughts how extraordinary his knowledge is of us and us and billions of billions and trillions of people who've lived throughout the ages. Now, we could stop right there. And I could give the benediction. And we could sing glory, hallelujah together. And that's often what happens with this psalm when it's read. But David isn't done. In the midst of this beautiful picture of God's intimate connection with us and knowing us and searching us, he throws in this weird set of verses. Look at verse 19 with me and see how this goes. You know, you've seen all this beautiful language, fearfully and wonderfully made. And then he says in verse 19, oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. 
O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. I don't know about you guys, but normally when I read this psalm, I kind of gloss over this part like, uh, yeah, okay. David's raging a little. Something's up. We won't worry about that. But here's the thing. This is the inspired, inerrant word of God, even this part. It fits in the psalm for a reason. And it's a very strange thing for us to read this. And it's like David, after saying all these glorious things, takes a hard left into a guardrail to shock us. He talks about enemies. He talks about wicked people, men of blood, God-haters, and how he hates them. They've been doing violence. He is threatened by them. And in the process, we get a little taste of David's anger, his passion, his, even his rage. And to hear somebody say, I hate those who hate you. I mean, don't we like kind of shudder at that? Like, what is that about? So that's the question. What is David doing here in this in this text? Why is he ruining a perfectly good prayer? Well, here's the thing. If you've ever been through stress or duress even having someone who is hostile towards you with words uh, in your workplace or other venues, you have probably felt the intense feelings that David is feeling in this text. Powerful feelings come upon us in certain circumstances when we face tragedy, when we get into a serious knockdown, drag out fight with our spouse, powerful feelings take us over when we realize something really dark is going on in our culture, in our family, in relationships with other people. They just wash upon us in a way that blows us away, and that is what is happening to David in our text. What David is doing is he's being emotionally honest. That's what I said. Emotionally honest. Amidst all this fabulous theology about God, this inspiring language of being fearfully and wonderfully made, David feels these powerful feelings that are overtaking him in his anger. What shall we think about emotions that even show up in Scripture? Emotions are not something many of us are very comfortable with. But here's the reality. God made us emotional beings. You are an emotional being. So am I an emotional being. Think about it this way. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was fully God and fully man. And He was an emotional being. He had feelings. He cried. He got happy. He got angry. He felt deep disappointment. And if you've ever uh, read the uh, account of the, of the uh, Garden of Gethsemane, in like Luke 22, 
You'll find he's so stressed out, he is dripping with blood, with capillaries breaking in his face. These are real things that we all feel. And the reason that people like you, and especially people like me, are uncomfortable with these verses is that we're uncomfortable with feelings. This is where Skip Ryan's talks came in and what we're going to talk about today. There is a huge hole in our spirituality as Christians. And it shows up very often in our emotions and our emotional immaturity. We as Christians are often good at pulling together knowledge, intellectual knowledge about the Bible... We're often good about even implementing some of the things we learn in our lives, but we feel often disconnected, like it's not all there with God. And that is why there is a whole, I would submit to you, there is a huge hole in our spirituality around our emotional maturity. Our knowledge and actions are missing something that brings the whole of who we are to God and to other people. Now, I want to be real clear. I come to you today as someone who is not very good at emotional maturity. I am not, I'm a fellow repenter and a grower in this with you. And this is no small thing for me and for us as a people. David feels the intensity of his feelings like we feel the intensity of ours. And just to be clear, this is not in these verses 19 through 22, not something that gives us permission to actually go out and rage on people. What it's meant to do is to reflect what David was actually feeling in the midst of a difficult time in his life. So the question is, how do we get to emotional maturity? How do we come clean with the truth of what we're really feeling in life with God? Well, the answer comes in the next verses. And I would submit to you these next verses in verses 23 and 24 are the most dangerous prayers you could pray in your life. David says it himself. He says this, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me. In the way everlasting. He begins this prayer with search me and know me. Well, wait a minute. Wait, wait, wait. We've heard that before, haven't we? It's back in verse 1. When he says, you have searched me. You have known me. You have actually seen every aspect of who I am and what I do in life. You know me more intimately than I do. Omnisciently, omnipresently, omnipotently and sovereignly. He's already established that in the whole psalm. And then he says it again, search me and know me. Why is he praying this again? Why would he say that? Is it because God missed something about him and doesn't know him? Nope. It's because of this. David doesn't know himself. And he wants God to reveal to him things about himself, the truth about himself. That's what he's doing here in this verse. He is praying that he would know himself and therefore know God. 
Think about it. David's thinking in his head. Have you ever felt this when you get really angry or you're really hurt? I just want to be malicious. I want to hurt back. Or I'm really angry. I just want to rage on that person. You know, you go through those feelings, you know. Well, that's what David's doing right here. He's processing it and he wrote it down for us to think about. He's thinking, I'm dealing with dangerous people and I know my impulses. I want to hurt that person. Search me and know me, O God. Reveal to me who I am in my anger. And lead me to a different way. This is the prayer of self-knowledge. To say, search me and know me, is to open yourself up to the light of God coming into our souls and revealing who we are and what we need. I mean, great philosophers like um, Plato said, know thyself. But our guy, John Calvin, said it this way. There are two kinds of knowledge. There's the knowledge of God and the knowledge of self. Which one comes first? We cannot say. Guys, you got to understand, Calvin was Mr. God-centered. And he's the one who says, which one of those knowledges comes first? We can't say. Meaning, there's something in knowing yourself that drives you to know God as a Christian. There's something in knowing God that drives you to knowing yourself as a Christian. And knowing ourselves, even in the whole of who we are, is a key piece of growing in Christ. What is the self to know in Scripture? Well, there are three parts to the human person, to the human soul. In fact, when you read Scripture and you hear the language of the heart of a person, um, love the Lord your God with all your heart, for example, that's talking about our soul, our whole person, the seat of who we are. And there are three parts of that. The first is the mind, our cognitive thinking. The second part of that is our will, how we make choices and do actions. But there is this third part that we get really uncomfortable talking about. And that's the affect, our emotions. How we handle our emotions. Our Presbyterian tradition is really good at the head. We're good at collecting knowledge. If you want to go to the best theologians around, typically they're Reformed Presbyterian guys historically, just generally speaking. It's because we are just really bright folks generally. And that's a good gift that God has given our church. It's a good longing to pursue more knowledge. I think the Baptists are really good at the will. And those guys can accomplish anything. It's a gift of their tradition. Will is that obedience, that how I follow God in my life, my daily life. But the one thing that's often forgotten in our spirituality is this area of the emotional and relational. In fact, most of us here are pretty suspicious about emotions. I would suggest to you that many of us even have an aversion to it. We've been told you can't trust emotions. And i got to tell you, sometimes you can't. But you also need to say you can't trust your thoughts and you can't trust your choices because sin has affected all of you. Not just your emotions. <laughs> How do we understand emotions then? Emotions are like a billboard in your life, a pointer, a, a, a pop-up screen. 
that point to something going on outside of us or inside of us that's true. Here's what I mean. Sometimes something happens outside of us and our emotions are a response to that true experience of what happened. Sometimes what happens inside us emotionally, how we respond to things, says more about what's going on inside of us relative to something that's happened outside of us. It says more about our story. Those emotions point to real things that are going on within us. And the big mistake we make in our spiritual growth is we don't pay attention to what's going on to us emotionally. David got that. And he's saying, man, I am mad at these people. I hate them. But I know I can't live there. Search me and know me, O oh God. Help me with the intense emotions. I want to go a different way, an everlasting way in utilizing these emotions for your glory. Let me put it this way. All of us here need to grow in Christ. Some of us here need more head knowledge. You need to grow in your knowledge of how Christianity works, the larger truths that affect your life every day, and especially who God is and who Christ is and what he's accomplished for you. Even how the Spirit works in your life. Some of us here need to grow in our obedience. We need to start making choices for Christ in line with His will and His word and His law. But I would suggest that most of us here are behind emotionally in our growth. And we need to come to grips with that. Take, for example, anger in men. This is something I've been thinking a lot about the last few years of myself. I just want you to know I've come to the conclusion after several years of praying through this, talking with my counselor, hanging out with people who know me well, I have the anger of a 12-year-old. No, seriously. What I need is the anger of a mature, godly man. What does the anger of a 12-year-old look like? Or an anger that we mostly hang out? Well, for most men... What we often struggle with is, I can't get angry, I can't get angry, I can't get angry. We have the perfection model. Men don't get angry. But here's what happens. You hold the anger in after hurt, after hurt, after hurt. And finally you, kaboom, blow up in front of your wives and your kids. That's what we call passive aggressiveness. Then there are the other guys who are like, man, you're not going to do me wrong. I'm going to give you my anger and all you got. Those are the peace breakers who blow up. What God calls us to is Ephesians 4. Be angry and do not sin. Try and live that one without the Holy Spirit. Actually feel the anger inside. This is wrong. This is not right. But also... Believe that there is a just God and a merciful God and that we handle our anger appropriately. Let me put it this way. Men, we control our anger. We don't let it control us. That's what mature anger looks like. I mean, even God gets angry. It's not a sin. It's how you handle it in relationship. What we don't realize is that 
Our emotions are a bigger part of us than we realize. When you have a conversation with somebody, you are having two conversations. One with your mouth, what you're talking in words, and one in what you're emoting. I'm emoting things right now with you. Hopefully it's not too much dissonance. But that's what happens. When we interact with each other, we need to pay attention to both of these. You know what? It took me 15 years of marriage to realize that I was actually emoting something different than what I was saying to my wife. Elizabeth would say, you're mad right now, aren't you? And I'd go, no, I'm not mad. And stop criticizing me. Do you see the, the dissonance there? It's crazy making. It's crazy making. One of the things that we have lost in the evangelical and even reformed tradition is that we talk truth, 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 but we don't believe in existential truth. What do you really think and feel right now before the Lord? I mean, even David's honest. Now, I'm not saying we're to be Oprah going around telling everybody, well, I'm mad at them. And I'm not saying that. <laughs> All right. It's not Jerry Springer. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's before the Lord expressing your emotions with honesty and saying, Jesus, I need you right now with these. Just like I need you with my thoughts in my theology applied in how I live my life. I need you. Search me, know me, see me and help me to see myself. Why are we talking about emotional honesty? This is the year of gathering. And in the year of gathering, we're going to be hopefully having more evangelistic conversations with people. Too many times when people are talking about Jesus, there are those two conversations going on. One, the words, and then what we're emoting. I'm calling us today to think twice about that, not only in how we talk with unbelievers, but even with each other and with even the Lord. Emotional honesty helps us to come clean. It actually helps us to step outside of ourselves and look at ourselves through the eyes of God. To say, search me and know me, that's what that means. When you share the gospel to, with people, you're going to have two conversations. And you need to ask, what am I saying with those? You and I are called to a life of sharing of ourselves, first with God and even with each other. And this is a huge part of our lives that I think is really, really neglected. That's what the week of Jubilee is about. The week of Jubilee is a time where I am calling all of us to go to the Lord, to take substantive time with Him, and to pray, search me and know me. To dare to pray the most dangerous prayer in Scripture. To ask God to reveal you to yourself. So that you know yourself, your need for God, how Christ might actually connect with what's going on inside of you emotionally. And to enjoy the grace of the Spirit in your life, working, moving, bringing the comfort that is true in, in God himself. This is a prayer that invites light on sin. But I'll tell you, for some of us, it's not just light on sin, it's light on glory too. You know that, right? 
we're not only uncomfortable with being seen in our sin, we all are uncomfortable with our glory. What's beautiful and glorious, what God's doing is, I feel it regularly standing right in front of you. Christ wants to meet you in those quiet moments and reveal himself to you. As he reveals you, he's going to show you himself. How do we pursue this Christ in this week of Jubilee? Well, number one thing you need to do this coming week. You ready? Okay, this is, this is big. Turn off your cell phone. Turn off the iPhone. Turn off your TV, your iPad, and sit quietly for 15 to 30 minutes. Here's what's going to happen. You're going to go crazy for the first 15, 30 minutes. I feel, I, I've been doing this for a little while. I've been thinking about this last month a lot. And I, I, all the time sitting at all that's going through my head is, oh, I've got to do this. I gotta, oh, I didn't call that person. Oh, I, and I'm just going through all kinds of things in my head. But just say, be still. And know that I'm God. Listen to who God is. Sitting on the throne of heaven. Smiling at us because we're his children in Christ. Enjoying us as we enjoy him. Second, pray. Oh, excuse me. Get in the word and pray. Go into this actual psalm or some part of the word and let God speak to you. In the word of God through the spirit. Let him speak to your heart. You know he's speaking when the words start popping. You know you're reading and going whoa whoa. Man I didn't notice that before. And as you get that pray. Ask God to reveal you. To search you. And just sit with him. Third. Consider fasting as a way of giving up. Something good for someone better. Fasting is that art of sometimes giving up food for a meal, maybe for a day. Fasting, in my case, I'm going to be probably fast for my cell phone, from food, and from my email. So if you don't hear from me for a few days after you text me, hey, it's not because I don't like you. It's I'm doing business with Jesus. Go do business with Jesus as you give up some of these things that are good. And as you're sitting there fasting and you feel the hunger, the longing, ask what you're longing for. What is it you really want? Because Christ will be right there saying, I can satisfy that longing. You were made for me. I can fill your soul. Then fast and pray for the non-Christians in your life. Get emotionally engaged in praying for them. Give up something to gain in Christ. Give up something to give yourself away to another in prayer and preparation to share the gospel. Today, this all starts with the Lord's Supper where we're going to come to the table in the next few minutes and receive the elements. I ask you as we come to the table now to bring your heart, to bring your emotion, your thought, what's true, and bring it to Christ in all of who you are.
it's okay to get emotional at the Lord's Supper. You know why? It's not every day someone dies for your sin. Now let's prepare our hearts as we come before the Lord so that we might know Him and He would know us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come now and we admit that what we've just talked about is big stuff. It's not easy. We pray today that You would open our hearts to what is true about You and Your Word, the story of Scripture and of the cross for us. And now, Lord, help us to engage You even with our emotion as we take the bread and drink the cup. Meet us, Lord. This doesn't come easy. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. To prepare not only our minds, but our wills,